Hey, good afternoon, church. This is Eric, and I'm just catching up on a few podcasts that I've failed to record over the last two weeks. So two weeks ago, we are, well, we've been in this this series on, we call it walking in water. We're examining kind of water, the way water works and the role that it plays throughout the scriptures. And so we're just examining that uh, over the last couple weeks. And two weeks ago, we talked about the Reed Sea the Reed Sea, and you might be confused as to why it's called the Reed Sea. So let's do a little geography at the beginning here. Um, The main story is of the Israelites, and you're probably familiar with uh, them crossing the Red Sea. Um, Sometimes when you think about that, you think of this massive body of water that's located between, say, Africa and the Sinai Peninsula, um, and you think about that that giant body of water, the Red Sea, which is anywhere between 100 and 150 miles wide. Um, some places are even 200 miles wide. Um, and when you think about the Israelites crossing that, that's not even crossable walking in a day or even a week. Um, so as we look for what would be called the Red Sea, we actually have to look at the word itself um, the, the word that gets translated here in Hebrew is Yam Suf, and that basically means the Sea of Reeds. So as you're kind of looking in the kind of geography piece of it, you would be looking for a sea with reeds in it. Um, if you got a map program and you want to kind of open it up, you could start uh, up in the Gulf of Suez. Uh, if you wanted to type in Gulf of Suez and kind of see where that is. Most scholars, they don't know where the, the crossing of the Red Sea or the Reed Sea happened. But there's a couple possibilities. The first one would be the Gulf of Suez. Um, and there's kind of that, that body of water there in the very northern tip of the Red Sea. Um, and then as you move up a little bit more, there's a lake called the Bitter Lake. Um, and again, some scholars think that this is a possibility. This is where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. Um, if you go up a little bit farther from there, you go to Lake Timsah, um, which is possible. It's only about three feet deep. It could be easily be crossed. The water could easily be separated. Um, and, and, and there's some people who believe that that was the spot. And some people even would say that there are, the, the, the place that the Israelites crossed were the marshy lands south of the Mediterranean. So there's these kind of four, maybe five different places that most scholars um, believe that they crossed. It wasn't, it wasn't the giant Red Sea that we would probably think of. Um, nobody knows exactly where it happens. But just for your knowledge, um, just kind of think about the Israelites traversing through the Yam Suf, this sea of reeds, um, which ends up being, you know, this word Yam uh, ends up being mistranslated in Greek from reed to red. And that's kind of how we end up with this Red Sea. Um, what I want to do this morning, and uh, sorry, what I want to do this morning, what I want to do this afternoon, and if you're listening out there, what we'll do is we'll do a little bit of prolonged Bible reading. So if you have a Bible, what I would encourage you to do is go to Exodus chapter 14. Verses 1 through 31. Exodus 14, verses 1 through 31. This is the narrative of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Um, If you got your Bible, I would say this to open there. And then one of the gifts of Israel, one of the gifts of the Old Testament, one of the gifts of the Bible in general 
is that it provides a mirror for you and I. Um, as I was reading and as I was studying these passages, I saw these moments that illuminated my life, my habits, my choices, attitudes, um, moments, narratives. I saw myself multiple times in this text. Um, on that Sunday morning, two weeks ago, I handed out these little mirrors. Um, and if you might have a mirror somewhere in your house or somewhere around you, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to keep this alongside you as you read this passage, as a reminder that you are directly there in the text. The Bible is reflecting back to you in the text. See where you see yourself. And then we had a little kind of opportunity to share with the person next to you. Um, but, you know, share maybe what you see, how you see, or, or where you're seeing yourself in the text. So, Pause the recording, um, go read Exodus 14, 1 through 31, and then just, again, God, where do I see myself? Where is this text mirroring back to me? All right, <clears throat> I'm assuming that you have done that and you are back. So a couple thoughts on this, on this passage. Uh, I have what I'm calling the grand view and the micro view. The grand view I'm asking here is what is this narrative all about? What is the Bible trying to communicate with this narrative? Now, as we've said again and again and again, I am sold on repeating the repetition. Repeat the repeat. This repetition piece, I see the Bible doing again and again and again. So in this narrative, in the crossing of the Red Sea, we once again, in Exodus 14.21, have the wind blowing over the water. Let me read this verse for you. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. Now, this is a repetition back to the Genesis creation narrative in Genesis 1, 2, 9, and then also to the Noah narrative in Genesis 8, 1. You have in the Genesis 1, in the creation narrative, you have God separating the water from the dry land. In the Noah narrative, you have God separating, or in the wind specifically, separating the, the um, water from the dry land. And here again in Exodus, you have God, the wind, separating the dry land from the water. So in Genesis 1, in, Genesis 1, in the uh, creation narrative, you have chaos destroyed, right? God destroys the chaos and he creates the world. He creates the earth. In Genesis 8, you have humanity destroyed and you have a new family created. And in Exodus 14, you have an army destroyed and a nation, Israel, is created. So, besides the miracle of the sea crossing, perhaps the biggest narrative the author is hinting at is the birth creation of the nation of Israel. He's almost comparing it to creation and the ark. So, the grand view, what is this all about? This is all about nation creation. Again, it's the repetition that we see throughout Genesis is repeated again here in Exodus. Now, the micro view 
is just a few verses that really stood out to me. And, and again, there were many, but verses 13 and 14 uh, to me were just so immense. Um, to understand verse 13 and 14, you got to go back a little bit to verse 10 and 11. So in verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, right? So you have in... um, before I get into Moses' answer, you have in verses 10 and 11, the people, they just start complaining. And often here's something that's true about most folks. When specifically religious people encounter difficulty, often our first response is to complain to God and blame religious leaders, right? The Israelites begin by complaining to God and blaming Moses, right? This is standard religious operating procedure since 1500 BC. So, The Israelites are complaining, they're blaming, they're all flustered. Now Moses responds in verse 13, and he just just piles it in, right? The the Israelites, he says to them, I I like the King James translation here, fear ye not, right? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Now, let's just take a moment and look at this phrase. And I've taught on this before, but again, this is the most repeated command in the Bible. Most people agree that this, the Bible repeats this command, speaking of the repetition, 365 times. One for every day of the year. Sometimes it feels a little bit uh, sentimental, kind of daily bread devotional for me. But I think the repetition is something to pay attention to. And the way that do not fear is phrased is what's called a present imperative. So that means that there is a continuing state instead of a one-time command. For example, when I tell my girls to eat your vegetables, right? When I say, girls, you need to eat your vegetables. This is not a one-time lunch or dinner instruction to finish the peas and carrots on their plate and thus being done eating their vegetables for the entirety of their life. What I am saying when I say eat your vegetables in this present imperative is I'm teaching my children that at mealtime, we will eat vegetables as normal behavior. It is part of our daily diet. So Moses says to the Israelites who are complaining and blaming, he says, I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to have fear, which would equivalent to, I want you to continue taking courage. I want you to habitually follow this. This is a long-term commitment a way of life. And here's what's difficult about this is we live right now, especially in a country of convenience, safety, and security, right? We live in a country of comfort, convenience, safety, and security. I recently heard a politician, he was a mayor of a certain city, and he said that his number one job was to keep you safe, right? Now imagine Moses speaking those words. Instead of these great words, fear ye not, do not be afraid. Moses, all he does is he coddles the Israelites and he says, I'm going to keep you safe, right? 
What Moses was doing instead was he was teaching the Israelites to eat their vegetables. A way of life, a long-term commitment, a habit of taking courage in the midst of challenging situations, trusting Yahweh, anchoring their courage in him. When there's Egyptians to one side and a dead-end sea on the other side, in the midst of that, Moses is not saying, I'm going to keep you safe. He's saying, do not be afraid. What a season we live in to practice this. It's pretty much everything that could be said about 2020 has been said, but this has been a season of insecurity. We do not know what is going to happen. We do really don't even know what has happened. And we don't even know kind of what's happening on a day-to-day basis. But this is a time to take courage, to stand in the middle of this struggle and strife with the bold words of God. Do not be afraid. One of my favorite quotes is by an author named Frederick Buechner. Frederick Buechner says this. He says, the grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party would have been complete without you. I might have mumbled that last sentence. Let me say that again. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. And then he says this, listen to this. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I love you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. Do not be afraid. The next thing Moses says after fear ye not is he teaches them to stand firm. This is a disposition in which you have confidence in God, even with the army pursuing you and a dead end hemming you in. My first reaction in that moment would have been to run, right? Run as fast and as far as I could. Um, but what's but what I'm reminded of when I was reading these words, stand firm, I'm reminded of Psalm 23. And at the end of Psalm 23, um, David, this, this beautiful psalm that we're all so familiar with, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. At the end of Psalm 23, David says this. He says, I'm just bringing it up. He says, um, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I've always loved that verse because I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I've been around um, enemies. And, and what I mean by enemies is people who I'm in relational strife with, people who have um, hurt me, who have wronged me, um, who it's just a really difficult moment to even be around that person. And when I get around those people who would, who would seemingly be kind of what I would think of as enemies, I get so nervous I lose my appetite. I don't want to eat. I, I just get all sweaty, um, you know, and I, I just clam up. But think about David in this. In the presence of his enemies, he's having a feast. You prepare a table, a feast. He's eating a meal while his enemies are standing all around him, right? And I think about the Israelites when Moses tells them to stand for him. Just stand here. Just stand here. I'm going to prepare a table for you in the midst of all your enemies. You don't have to run away. 
You don't have to be nervous. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to get all sweaty. Sit down. Take a seat. Stay exactly where you are. And feast in the midst of this. So Moses tells them, do not be afraid. Fear ye not. Stand firm. And then he says this. He says, look. He says, watch. Right? In verse in verse uh, 13, he says, do not be afraid, stand firm. And then he says, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Um, the Bible, I would say, one of the dominant metaphors of the Bible is to open our eyes. Our spiritual eyes to see the God who is at work all around us. Open your eyes, but you can only do that. You can only open your eyes when you're standing still, when you're firm, when you're not afraid, when you're, think about when you, when you're afraid and you flinch, right? You can only stand still with eyes wide open when you're not afraid. Now, the last verse here, and we'll close with this, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. He's kind of repeating a little bit the standing firm, the standing still. Um, I love this verse because this verse, I don't know where I stumbled across it, but I stumbled across it at one point. Um, and in, in the New Living Translation, the last part of that verse where it says you need only to be still, the way that the New Living Translation reads is it reads, just keep calm. For a good number of years, my email signature, that kind of little piece that you put below all your emails that gets automatically added, used to say Eric Williams. And then it would say, just keep calm. Exodus 14, 14b. And it's such a reminder. I just wanted to remind everybody in the world. I want to remind every single person I ever emailed, hey, hey, whatever you're doing, Whatever's happening in life, whatever's going on, just keep calm. Why do we keep calm? Because the Lord is the one who fights all our battles. My brothers and sisters, whatever situation you have faced or are facing or will face, do not fear. Stand firm. Watch. You will see. You will see. Just watch. Keep your eyes open. And most importantly, just keep calm. Hey, I love you guys. I hope this brought some, um, some good thoughts to you and uh, some good encouragement to you about which way to go um, this week as, as you kind of listen to this and, and examine this. Again, if you didn't get a chance, just take uh, Exodus 14, 1 through 31. Go read it. Maybe put a mirror beside it and allow it to speak into your life um, showing you maybe what God wants to speak to you today. Remember, my primary job as a pastor is that you would hear the voice of the Lord and that you would respond appropriately. Blessings to you today. Amen.